Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's super. No, it's a dragon. Sounds like it's time for episode 100 of Pop Art. Yes, you heard that right. This is the 100th episode of my podcast. Huzzah, huzzah. I can't believe I got here, but here I am. It's the podcast where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture. And I'll select a film from the more art classic indie foreign side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your all hell Cassiodorus Rex Dragon Slayer host, Howard Casper. Today, I'm happy to welcome as my guest, filmmaker and podcaster, Donald McKinney III, who was my very first guest on Pop Art and who showed me the road. Donald has chosen as his film, the animated The Flight of Dragons, while I have chosen the more SFX spectacular Dragon Slayer, both films about young people who have to battle a dragon. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. Hey, it's my 100th episode. Give me a break and leave a review. So again, Donald, why don't you remind our audience something about yourself? Well, hello there, Howard, and thank you for having me on uh, again, especially for, for such an auspicious occasion as a 100th episode. I'm very happy and also very proud. I'm a very proud papa right now with you and, and the fact that you've continued to keep this going and have actually thrived, which is wonderful to see. Super happy about that. So congratulations. Great. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is The Flight of Dragons. First, some information about the film. The Flight of Dragons is an animated film released in 1982. It was directed by Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin Jr. and written by Romeo Muller, combining aspects of Peter Dickinson and Wayne Anderson's book, The Flight of Dragons, and Gordon R. Dixon's book, The Dragon and the George. It stars the voices of Victor Bueno, James Gregory, James Earl Jones, Harry Morgan, John Ritter, Larry Stort, John Messick, Bob McFadden, Alexandra Stoddard, Nellie Bellflower, and Paul Freed. Additional character voices were provided by Ed Peck and Jack Lester. In an age of medieval fantasy, a world filled with dragons and wizards, one of the four existing wizards, Carolinas, is worried that science is going to replace magic until magic no longer exists. With the help of the other three wizards, he hopes to set up a location for magic and fantastical creatures that is separate and can't be found by outsiders. But one of the wizards, the evil Omadon, decides to take advantage of the situation and take over the world with his black magic that would cause humans to use their science to destroy themselves. Carolinus gathers a group of warriors to stop Omadon, headed by someone from the future who, while on the quest, is turned into a dragon himself. Before covering the film proper, I thought we might begin by talking about certain aspects of these films. What do you think is the appeal of stories about dragons? It's the fact that it's something whimsical, it's something that doesn't exist. A lot of times, dragons talk. Dragons have an education, so to speak. So they are an intelligent species. That's something that I think that's always been kind of appealing, not only to me, but I'm sure to tons of other people that have watched or read about Dra Hobbit or television for the flight of dragons or in the theater for Dragon Slayer. There's always just something so mysterious and cool about a giant lizard that could fly and loves gold, either wreaking havoc or helping people. It's a fun, whimsical fantasy element that I think just crosses all boundaries. Well, I think you're right. And I think that's one of the reasons why, for me, they're the epitome of fantasy films. The most powerful of creatures, perhaps outside of wizards, but even dragons are at times more powerful than wizards. But since dragons and magic don't exist, I think they have to be looked at metaphorically in some way as well. And what they represent varies from culture to culture. In the West, dragons symbolized evil and sin. In Scandinavia, they represent greed. But in China, a dragon is good luck, symbolizing protection and fertility. For me, there are a couple of ideas of what they might represent. One is that they represent the it, that part of us that is unregulated unless it is quelled by the ego and superego. And by the end of a movie, the dragon is usually destroyed or is tamed in some way and our ego conquers these dark forces within us. But they also represent unconquerable adversity. They are metaphors for the difficult circumstances that we have to conquer to meet our goals. We even have words like dragon lady where someone breathes fire to describe people 
So something must be brought under control by taming it before mm -hmm. you or mankind can move forward. And in both of these films, the stories are placed at a time when one era is being replaced by another era. So they are a symbol of something that must be destroyed to allow for change or will never move forward. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Do you have some favorite dragons, and what do you think they represent? Well, geez, besides the obvious of Gorbash or Myrtle? It's Myrtle, right? Yeah. yeah. Besides the obvious of those two, that's a tough one. I would say probably Smog, because he's such a badass, both in printed page and in film. Um, they really did a great job with the dragon uh, himself in The Hobbit trilogy series that uh, Peter Jackson directed. The films themselves, well, you know. I know. Yeah, we don't really have to go there. Right, but, you know. Smog from The Hobbit, one of my favorites. And he does seem to represent exorbitant greed. Or actually, mm -hmm. since Tolkien was a Christian, for him it might be closer to sin and greed being destroyed by spirituality when Bilbo Baggins comes in. It's the kind of sin that paralyzes you because Smog never leaves his cave. He has all this right. gold and he never leaves. So his this sin part of him has been completely paralyzed. He can't free himself up. Yeah, because he's so worried that somebody's going to come in and take what he has. That he that can't he... enjoy it. Yeah. That's a terrible way to live. Well, it's very Greek tragic. Yeah. And then in Game of Thrones, I think they represent, on a practical matter, fighter planes that carried fire bombs in World War II, like the bombing of Dresden and Tokyo. Mm -hmm. But they also represent the inner psyche of Daenerys, and they generally follow her bidding. It depends on how she feels as to what they do. That's true. They were very emotional based upon her reaction. Why did you choose this film? Uh, simple. When I was a kid, oh, four or five years old, I played this on VHS until I broke the tape. At that point, my dad was so happy because oh. he didn't he, <laughs> he didn't, didn't have, have to watch it anymore. Right, right. <laughs> but what he didn't realize was that I would cry every day that I didn't have that movie to watch. So he went out. A credit to his parenting, he went out and got it for me again, much to his chagrin. Then you whined I, and whined. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I whined, man. I whined. Did anything and everything. Yeah, I was a little brat for sure. See, my mom never minded. She loves animated films and stuff. That's primarily how me and my mother bonded was through through animated movies. We would watch them together all the time. So Flight of Dragons was just something that stuck with us, particularly because of the, the fantasy element involved with it, with the dragons. And I, I actually thought the story was so wackadoo, so different from the other stories that you're used to seeing with this kind of fantasy element, that even as a kid, it struck me as rather odd. And that kind of stuck with me throughout the years, and I have revisited it many times. So you didn't see it on TV? No, never saw it on TV. Saturday night at the movies on TV in the U.S. I missed it. I was probably out playing or so something. So did I. Yeah, so. Well, I first saw it for the podcast. I was not really familiar with it. It's very imaginative with some nice animation. You can tell it was intended for TV. Mm -hmm. So it was released straight to video in England because it has those moments when a commercial is supposed to be inserted. It goes yes. to yep. <laughs> yep. a couple of seconds. At first I was wondering, and then I said, oh, okay, this was made for TV. Got it. Mm. I think it's fine. It's trying to deal with some interesting issues, but I do think it's metaphor, which we'll talk about more later. The conflict of science and magic was a bit confusing for me and not always clearly thought out. As the blog The Unknown Movie said, there may not be a strong constant threat in The Flight of Dragon, but all its moments of warmth, imagination, and interest combine to make magic. I'm sort of with that. I am missing that strong constant threat. What are some of your favorite scenes? Okay, so when Smurgle's trying to teach Gorbash about making fire, I don't about that scene. I just love that scene so much where he's showing him about chewing up the limestone and getting it in your craw being able to access that to grind that together and that's how you get your ignition and how to flow basically all the stuff to learn to actually be a dragon i thought that was extremely clever in that you get this scientist who's he's very scientific but he's also kind of fanciful in a way you know he still has this love of fantasy this childlike awe which is great for us the audience especially a kid because you're watching it and this dude's getting so excited about everything and you're excited about him being excited because you're excited already. Sharing that common bond when he basically combined with the dragon because of a magical incantation like gone horribly wrong and it combined the two of them and now he is Gorbash. And, and it's fun because it's playing from the point of Peter Dickinson. You have these characters from the novel 
not even so much a novel as it is basically just showing you the dragons and things like that. It, it's called The Flight of Dragons, and it, it is an actual book that you can get. You can find it on Amazon, eBay, wherever, and it describes all the different dragons and stuff. I had not known about that until I was in Amada Beyond. I didn't know that book existed. The other scene I loved was with the knight, Sir Orn, and learning his story of how he saved Gorbat as a baby against the evil clutches of the most terrifying dragon in all the land. I like the meaning of the four wizard and that they're, they're all different. The Asian wizard, because his dragon is more serpent-like and it's different from the others. Mm-hmm. It feels more like a Chinese painting. Yeah, they did a good job with that. The directors for Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin. Are you familiar with much of their other work and how do you feel about them? Do you enjoy their shorts and movies and things? Oh, man, I absolutely loved most, I'll say most, of their stop-motion animation. Uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Frosty the Snowman, is that hand-drawn? That wasn't stop-motion, that was just hand-drawn. But I believe that was still Rankin and Bass. If it was a made-for-television holiday special of some sort, Rankin and Bass had some finger in that pie, so to speak. As a kid, they were very influential for me growing up on network television. I think still to this day, if I recall, they'll air... Rudolph or Frosty, it's a really warm, sentimental feeling to have. I agree with you. My favorite of theirs are the stop motion. I was a little old for it. I mean, I watched it when they came out, Mm -hmm. but I was getting to that age where I didn't watch this stuff as much as when I was a child. So I didn't watch them a lot, but those are the ones I had the most memory of. And the stop motion, I think, is their better work. But outside of their hand-drawn one, one critic commented that the animation is a bit dated by today's standards, mm-hmm. And I think they may have a point. But this was even true for Disney. Disney was going through this period where it wasn't as detailed, it wasn't as much depth. And it wasn't until then, finally, we get to CGI, that all of a sudden we get the depth and range that they used to have before hand-drawn became so expensive to do. Mm-hmm. I can't find any information as to why or how the two became interested in the project. And they changed the book a lot. It's based on two books. Because the conflict of the movie, that of science and magic, really isn't in the other book. The screenplay is Robert Muller. He wrote many of the Bass and Rankin shows, as well as shows like Thundercat. Peter Dickinson and Wayne Anderson did The Flight of Dragons, which, as you said, really isn't like a novel or a story. It's more about dragons. And George R. Dickinson wrote The Dragon and the George. George is a human because of St. George the Dragon. So dragons tend to call humans Georges. <laughs> so the scientific explanation for dragons, how they fly, breathe fire, came from the book The Flight of Dragons, yeah. which was inspired by Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books, which describe dragons as a sort of gas bag, that that's how they fly. The look of the dragons in the movie are based on the book as well, and the author's name is used as the central character's name in the movie. Yeah, which when I found that out, I was like, oh... That's so cool. Thirty-something years old, and I'm still discovering stuff about my childhood favorite. Right. You know, but plot is more from the book, the dragon and the jaw. When it comes to the scenes where they're actually going to find the dragon to fight him, most of those scenes are from the book. Like when mm-hmm. they ran into the things from the sea. Little weird creatures that made this noise that would make you go insane. Right. Scenes like that are from the book, and the characters that are all on this journey are from the book. But the overall premise and the goals are different. In the book, the central character, Jim Eckert, is a doctor in medieval history. His fiancée, Angie Farrell, is a lab assistant to Grotwald Wiener Hansen, who experiments in astral projection. And during one experiment, Angie suddenly disappeared. To find her, Jim uses the machine Angie was testing, but his consciousness is projected into a medieval world and the body of the dragon Gorba. So he ends up in the body of the dragon in the book differently than in the movie. From what I can tell, the conflict of science and magic doesn't really play a part. And after rescuing Angie and being returned to his body, he and Angie decide to stay in the path. And Coralinus plays a more minor role. Here. This is sort of where I do have some difficulties with the movie because in adapting it, they were trying to figure out some sort of overall conflict or theme and they came up with this science versus magic. I feel it gets a bit 
wobbly. I mean, what is the metaphor of magic here? The question isn't whether magic and science can coexist. They can't, not because there is inherent conflict between the two, because magic just doesn't exist at all. So the magic has to be a metaphor, but I wasn't always sure what it was. It starts out seeming to be about ecology and progress with the swan almost dying, but then it becomes to be more about imagination. So it's imagination versus science, but I'm not sure how this conflict gets played out because in the end, Peter chooses science over magic. And if the metaphor is imagination, he's choosing science over imagination. Is that a happy ending then? No. I feel like what you're saying is, is very true, but to me, when watching it, the imagination, in the end, he actually has to use a combination of science with imagination. The science has to be imaginatively presented in a way to Omadon, who's the dark evil wizard, in order to defeat him. So he has to have this kind of a clever way to do that talking to him about science and how it's working and what does this and that. Who would have thought just shouting out pieces of science to someone would destroy them? There has to be some level of imagination involved there. And I felt that at the time, if Peter Dickinson didn't truly believe that the two could exist, then it wouldn't have worked. He had to have both science and magic within him. That's why he lived that time as a dragon to reacquaint himself with that world within him. I had this strange thought today as I was preparing. On Facebook lately, there's been a lot of discussion on AI and chatbot when it comes to writing. I'm very excited about it, but most writers are terrified of it. Here I'm thinking, well, here is the chatbot, the dragon, or Peter. The conflict between imagination and the chatbot, which is the scientific way of doing it, and which one is going to win. For me, the one that's going to win is the human being who can use his imagination to conquer the chatbot and use the chatbot for his own device rather than let the chatbot take over him. I suppose you could say the same thing here. Peter takes over the imagination, the dragon, everything like that, rather than that taking over him. And as you say, you see it as using a combination mm -hmm. of the two. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense when you say it, but you have to say it out loud, I think. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a favorite performance in the movie? I mean, it is really hard to state that James Earl Jones didn't just run away well, yes. with every scene he was in. Sort because, of saying, yeah, no. we're, we're talking about voice actors here. So for me, James Earl Jones was the epitome of evil, not only because he was the voice of Darth Vader, but now he's the voice of this dark wizard, Omadon, and he has a huge evil dragon that he flies literally flew in and was eating other dragon's eggs. He's such an ass. James Earl Jones, I feel, was like perfect for that role. But if we're talking about anybody else, Bobby Joe McFadden, I believe, played the voice of Sir Orin. I found his voice to be so unique as I'd never heard his voice before in the past. So now if somebody would just play a snippet of his voice, I would associate him instantly with Sir Orin. Uh, Sir Orin, I love the character. Yeah, it gets a little bit creepy when we're talking about his weird love for princess that's way, 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 way younger than him. I guess the age difference didn't occur to me because it was animated. Mm -hmm. And so visually, it doesn't always quite come across. It, that was probably more in the dialogue. Yeah, it absolutely was because he was like, oh, I vowed one day to make her my bride. And I think she was like eight. And he was yes. <laughs> looked like he was in his 30s. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> yes, I think to see here. Let's move on. I think to see here. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I certainly agree about James Earl Jones. What can you do if you have James Earl Jones in the movie? I did think every time I heard Henry Morgan, I said, what an odd choice to play a wizard. He's oh, just yeah. so American that it just felt a little odd to me. Yeah, he's what, what was in MASH, right? MASH? The series MASH and Dragnet. Yeah, so he has a extremely distinct voice to play Carolinas. You're right. It was an odd choice for sure. But one now, again, that I instantly recognize as that character. You oh, know, yeah. some, some of these guys, I've never seen their face before to be able to align the face with the voice and then the character and stuff like that. But James Earl Jones, Harry Morgan, John Ritter, those guys instantly recognize. And what do you think of the animation? 
Uh, well, the animation's not perfect. I do like that the dark characters, they don't shy away from making them dark. So not only the dark evil characters look dark and evil, but people that seem shady are drawn to look shady. So the people at the mill that were like, get away from here, wizard, when he's like, your machines are ruining nature and you need to stop. You instantly, in your head, you're like, oh, well, this guy's a bad guy. These are a bunch of bad guys. It's just interesting how everybody that's like a townsfolk you know, is in the pub or working a wall or protecting a city or whatever. They're all drawn very particularly to just feel like something's off. The world is becoming more dark. All the people are becoming more dark. And then, like you said earlier, the creativity with the dragons, I thought was fantastic. And that was probably one of the hugest appeals to me as a kid was getting to see all, you know, different colors and different horns and in different shapes and sizes and stuff. The animation's a little rough, for sure. Again, budget, that's that's probably a big part of it. But overall, I think they did a really good job of what they had. I do think the dragons are probably the best part of the animation, but it was this transition period where cell animation was becoming so expensive that it was even affecting Disney. And just at this time, we start getting the CGI that enables them to do something far richer on a cheaper budget. Even though they're very expensive now, it's just because they're trying to do more. Once you find a way to save money and do things efficiently, then you try to do more and the budget starts going mm -hmm. back up. Flimsy.com said of the film, animated fantasy films geared for family viewing just aren't made like this anymore. The voice acting in this movie is excellent to say the least. Though the animation may seem a bit dated, it remains beautiful by 1982 standards. And blogcritic.org said, the dialogue is surprisingly intelligent and may confuse some children, but it's nice to see an animated film that will stimulate adult minds. The voice casts are all great and I can't find a single fault with any of them. With that, here's some more information about the movie. I have no information on how much it cost to make or whether it made money, but since it was made for TV and released straight to video, that information is difficult to come by. This is the last film project, Victor Bruno. He played Arach. A broadcast of the film in Israel in the early 90s was disrupted and discontinued. It was later announced that it was due to a complaint received by the IBA, the Israeli Broadcasting Authority, its government national broadcaster, that some of the characters resembled anti-Semitic imagery, and there hasn't been a broadcast on the Israeli national broadcast since. And to be honest, at first, as I'm watching it, especially looking at the nose of Carolina, there was something there that bothered me at first, but it didn't seem to be used that consistently and in a way to be considered anti-Semitic. And to me, after the opening and the themes don't really seem to reflect anti-Semitic tropes. So I forgot yeah. about it pretty quickly. I didn't even think of that, to be honest. This is the first time I've ever heard anything about that. The original score was composed by Maury Laws. The film's theme song, also entitled The Flight of Dragons, was written and composed by Jules Bass and Maury Laws and performed by Don McLean. An official soundtrack was never released. However, Disney multi-Emmy award-winning film and television composer Carl Johnson did recreate several tracks from the animation for the live-action adaptation. Though the film was put on hiatus, three of the completed tracks were released online. Well, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is Dragon Slayer. However, first we are going to take a moment and listen to a promo from a fellow podcaster. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Film Cast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. Welcome back. First, some information about the film. Dragon Slayer is an American dark fantasy film released in 1981. It was directed by Matthew Robbins and written by Robbins and Hal Barwood. It stars Peter McNichol, Caitlin Clark, Ralph Richardson, John Hollum, Peter Eyre, Albert Salmi, Sidney Bromley, Chloe Salaman, Imris James, Roger Kemp, and Ian McDermott. In the time when the Romans have withdrawn from England, a dragon lives near a village and causes terror. The only way to get it to leave the village alone 
is to sacrifice a virgin to it. So every year, a lottery is held. After many years, a delegation goes to a wizard for help. He agrees, but when he dies early on, it's up to his apprentice, Galen, to ride to the village of the dragon and save the people there. But can Galen become proficient enough in magic and have the skills to achieve that goal? Before talking about the film proper, I thought we might talk about one area first. And it's kind of an odd area to talk about because these are two fantasy films, but it's because of a memory I have of the film at the time. And it's the sexualization of teens and children during the 70s and 80s. One reason is this is the only movie released under the Disney name with frontal male nudity. When Peter McNichol jumps into the water, his legs swing wide. We are provided with a quick shot of his genital. I and my friend noticed this at the time, of course, and we just sort of looked at each other because this was Disney. Mm -hmm. And no one was really talking that much about it. You also get a quick glimpse of Caitlin Clark's breath. Mm -hmm. The violence, adult themes, and brief, brief nudity were somewhat controversial, though Disney didn't hold the U.S. distribution rights. They only just distributed it in Europe. The film was rated PG in the U.S. But I was wondering if you think there's a difference in how teenage sexuality was treated then as opposed to today. I think in this film specifically, it was, it was very nonchalant. So it wasn't something that I felt was highlighted so much. There was the clever mention by Peter McNichol's character, Galen, when he finds out that Valerian, that's one of the townspeople's daughters, the metallurgist, and he was very clever to have her disguise herself as a boy. So she played a good chunk of the film supposedly as this boy because they would sacrifice women in the village to the dragon, like you said, once a year. But once they thought that they defeated the dragon, she kind of came out to the world and was, I'm actually a lady, and now I can be myself, my true authentic self. I can be this woman that I've always known I, I am, and now you get to see that. And when she did that, and then we realized the dragon wasn't dead, uh, spoilers from 1981, that then became the point where it was, oh, now she's going to be part of that lottery again. But then Peter McNichols' character is like, well, if you're a virgin, right. <laughs> you know? So I was like, oh, well done, Galen. Well done, you little pervert, you. Basically, he's offering his services to Valerian, you know, like, I could fix this. That felt very teenage-esque to me. And so, then they don't do it. No. As far as the sexualization and stuff in the film, I didn't notice it so much. It is an early 80s film, so I just... I guess, to be expected, because it's this time. Uh, yeah, I think it is very much sort of part of a time capsule. I should note that both Caitlin Clark and Peter McNichol were older than the ages they were playing in the movie. She was around 20, he was 24, 26. But when Jodie Foster did Taxi Driver and the Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, she was 14, and they used to body double for some of the scenes. And in Little Girls, Scott Jacoby, who she had a sex scene with, was 20. Olivia Hussey mm. was 15 when she did Romeo and Juliet. Brooke Shields was 12 when she did Pretty Baby. And she did Full Frontal. But there was hardly an outcry, which I was really shocked about. She was 15 for The Blue Lagoon and 16 for Endless Love. The men were 19 and 21. And remember, 1978, Roman Polanski fled the U.S. after having had sex with a 13-year-old. Mm -hmm. So this was definitely a different time. Today, you wouldn't even be allowed to do that. There are even law against some of the today mm -hmm. where you have to be a certain age in order to be in the sex scene. So you can be playing someone who's sick of 14, but if there's going to be any kind of sex scene, they have to be of age. They have to be 18 or older. Mm -hmm. But it was a weird time when almost anything went. They weren't sexualizing characters who were that young. The actresses were that young as well. And that was really weird. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because the idea that we want people to come see Blue Lagoon because Brooke Shields is so young. There's this Lolita nymphette aspect to it that's very disturbing. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? How do they fit together? What are some of the similarities and the differences? Okay, so I hadn't seen Dragon Slayer since I was probably seven or eight years old. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember my mom introducing it to me, and she probably did fast forward through the lake scene. or whatever. There's only one scene I remember as a kid, and that was him at the cave see the, the steam coming out and stuff. Uh, you see Galen there. So I remember being bored when I was a kid. I was I was like, oh, do we even get to see a dragon? Oh, you know, it I was so... It was a long time before the dragon appeared. Yeah, yeah, I was so annoyed by that. But again, as an adult now, seeing it, you know, in my 40s, I loved it. 
the dragon itself, I could see why they had to use the dragon sparingly because production-wise, having to move that thing around and stuff, it's like a big animatronic kind of a puppet. Jaws. It, yeah, it's it's all practical and it's magnificent to behold. It looks super freaking cool. My favorite scene is in the beginning when Yorick is the, is the main wizard, right? And he comes down from his tower of wizardry. There's these people there and they're like, we need you to help us fight a dragon. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. He's like, Galen, go up. I think it was fetch my dagger or something like that. So he comes back down and he has this dagger and he hands it to one of the knights. It's like, we have a lot of people that say they're a good wizard, but then they, they try to help us and it uh, goes south real quick. So we need to test you. And he's like, here, stab, you know, and then the dude stabs him. Right. And he's like, um, there's no problem. And then he just falls over. <laughs> yes, I wasn't really expecting that. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. <laughs> it's so funny to see that. I was laughing my ass off. I'm sitting there with my mom and we're watching it on this really small TV in this small little room because she. He's uh, getting physical therapy, and I'm watching Dragon Slayer with her, and this happens, and we just both crack up, and he just falls right over. I was like, this is the best. What you think? Oop. And then it turns out, spoilers from 1981, Yorick actually, there was a method to his madness, and when it comes back, you're like, oh, that's really cool. It, it does bog a little bit, I feel like, in the middle, just just yeah. slightly, you know, when there's not any dragon hunting or caravanning or anything to, to happen. It's just dialogue and stuff can be a bit sluggish. But overall, uh, I thought it was a very fun film, and I, I would definitely watch it again. You know. I do agree with you. The pacing could be stronger, but that dragon is magnificent. And, of course, dragons is one of the things that the two films have in common. Mm-hmm. And they're both about the end of one era and the beginning of a new era. And Flight of Dragons is about the end of magic overtaken by science, and Dragon Slayer is about the end of magic overtaken by Christianity. Both of them concern sacrifices or the town at that time it was sacrifice of a virgin but for christianity of course it's the sacrifice of jesus so it was replaced by one kind of sacrifice by another there's one small similarity that i think is fun in which both of the characters have special shields made for them mm. valerian makes a shield out of the dragon scales which i thought was very practical i thought the one made for peter was solid gold and i'm going one, that would weigh a ton. <laughs> I certainly couldn't imagine having to lift that thing and keep it in the air over and over again. And mm. being gold is very malleable and easily dented. So I just see the shield constantly being dented. Right. Uh, that's why nothing is made of solid gold. And I wonder how much of a conductor of heat, too, also. Like if he's holding it right, and the dragon's breathing oh. fire on it, like it would probably melt. Or at least heat up to the point where he couldn't hold it. Right. That's why the dragon scales are much better, because since they're the dragon scales, they can withstand anything. Yeah. Yeah. Super smart on Valerian's side there. There was a lot of little clever things that happened throughout the film, and and that's definitely one. I first saw it when it came out, and I loved it. As I said, I agree the pacing could be stronger, but it was one of my favorite films of the year. I think it still holds up. It's very exciting. Special effects are great. It's very entertaining. Mm -hmm. Perhaps could use a little more humor like Lady Hawk has in it, but I really love it. You've shared one of your favorite scenes. Do you have any others? Because I uh, also agree, the one with Ralph Richardson and his death. That's a great yeah, that's fantastic. I think the other really great scene to me is where Valerian comes out as a woman to everybody. It's bearing yourself basically naked in front of everybody without being naked. And then, of course, the fight at the end with the dragon with him jumping up on top of the head and everything. Just such a great scene within the water and the cave and the fire and the flames all around and stuff. So freaking cool. Loved it. I think they put in some stop motion animation elements in there with the dragon flying around at night up in the sky, which was also super cool. Him fighting the magician and stuff. All that stuff I felt was really super well done, especially for its time for 81. Man, it looked good. In connection with the one where she comes out as a woman, I like the scene where the princess rigs the lottery. Mm, mm-hmm. And the king tries to, oh, no, he just didn't read it right. We have to draw another one, or this is that, this that. And she tells her father, every one of them has my name on mm-hmm. But I really like at the end when the king comes up and takes credit for killing the dragon. And yeah. at the same time when Christianity takes over with Greel 
taking over the mantle of the dead priest and brings Christianity to the village. So it's end of one era and the beginning of another. Mm -hmm. And I love the final scene where Galen wishes they had a horse and one appears. Yeah, yeah, right at the end there. That was very, very funny, very clever. I really like the pairing of the two, just because, you know, it's it's dragons, it's fantasy. There's both elements of, of the waning of magic and stuff within the world. And, and I think that's topical. You could put that in in the 80s. You could put it in the 90s, the 2000s, 2020s. You can put it anywhere, and it's still going to have an effect. That something magical is dying, or, and it's being caused because of mankind. And I think that that's a very important lesson that we still all need to learn and be humbled by until the end of time. The direction was by Matthew Robin. Are you familiar with Robin? No, not really. Honestly, I didn't even look up to see what else he had done. Well, his best films that he directed are probably Corvette Summer and Dragon Slayer. I thought his career as a director was going to be stronger because of those two films. But his directing career didn't really go forward that much. In the end, he's more notable for working on screenplays for Steven Spielberg, though not always credited, sometimes he is, like Sugarland, Grass, Jaws, Close Encounters, and Guillermo del Toro. He wrote Mimic, Crimson Peak, and Pinocchio. Oh, he also did uh, Batteries Not Included. I'm just looking him up. Right. I loved that one when I was a kid. So he made some very solid movies. He's a rather talented writer, but his career never rose to what it probably possibly could be. Mm-hmm. You might enjoy Corvette Summer. It stars... Mark Hamill. That was also, I thought Mark Hamill's career was going to go much stronger because Corvette Summer showed he might have had more to him than Star Wars, but then he had that accident and his acting career became more of a voiceover career. Yeah, that was interesting because I guess he just didn't look the same, which was the problem. It was written by Robbins and Hal Barwood. They were both most successful when they worked together because they wrote also Corvette Summer and I think Batteries Not Included. They weren't as successful when they went out on their own. But we talked a little about the meaning of each film, what the conflicts are in each. And in Folly of the Dragons, it's about magic versus science. But for Dragon Slayer, it's more about the death of paganism and the replacement of it by Christianity. I thought it was interesting that the Flight of Dragons seems to jump from medieval and pagan time all the way to modernism. Mm-hmm which is like in the 1800s up to around 1945, it completely bypasses Christianity, which is what brought it into paganism. Right. I didn't really have a problem with that. And even as an adult, I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> no, I don't have any problem with it. It's just interesting that I thought, oh, well, they just really skipped over. <laughs> but you might also start thinking about the movies in context at the time. You talked about how they can apply to every generation, every year. There are different conflicts for each time. And at this time, they were being made as hippiedom was reaching its final date. The hippie movement, the love movement, sort of reached its peak in 1968 with the Summer of Love in San Francisco. Once Vietnam ended, then it sort of went its way. The Kennedy of Camelot was being replaced by Reagan of Big Business. Spirituality of the New Age movement was losing traction and Christianity was coming back in and becoming more popular. You can see that in many ways in both these movies, that the New Age of spirituality and being connected to nature and maybe there's more to the world than just practical matters is being replaced by business and making money and greed. Even Christianity was more based on how much money you can make if you really believe in God and you're a good Christian. So it is, in many ways, very much of its time. We also have films like Excalibur. So this was not an unusual idea for this period. No. Yeah, you're not wrong. According to Barwood, he and Robbins got inspired by the Sorcerer's Apprentice from Disney's Fantasia. And then they researched St. George and the Dragon. But they didn't want to do a romantic version of Medieval Time. And they made it more realistic. I mean, these people are dirty. They're very earthy, things of that nature. According to Danny Fingeroth in The Making of Dragon Slayer, the, quote, film has no knights in shining armor, no pennants streaming in the breeze, no delicate ladies with diaphanous veils waving from turreted castles, no courtly love, no holy grail. Instead, they set out to create a very strange world with a lot of weird values and customs steeped in superstition, where the clothes and manners of the people were rough, their homes and villages primitive, and their countryside almost primeval, so that the idea of magic would be more natural part of their existence. And because of this, this is why Barwood and Robbins decided to make the film after 
the Romans had left Britain and just as Christianity was making its first appearance. We should here talk about one oddity. When I saw it with my friend, he pointed this out. The dragon is female and she has babies. Mm. Oh, yes, yes. Uh-huh. She's been around for more than 16 years. We know that because otherwise there would have been no reason to disguise Valerian as a boy. So how did she get pregnant? Because there's no daddy dragon around. Right. And yeah. why would a female dragon want female virgin <laughs> as a sacrifice? There's a hot take on this one But when I was thinking about it, because like, I did think about that. What if he actually did kill that dragon, but killed a male? And then they just didn't talk about it, or they just glazed over that fact. That would have been a good solution for that, that there were actually two dragons. And if you had a male dragon, that would be a reason why you would have female virgins. They don't seem to do that, but that would have been a great solution. So let's go with that. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah. It's not like they went up to the dragon and said, oh, by the way, what will make you leave us alone? Because the dragon can talk and say, well, female virgins would do it. You kind of wonder where they got this idea that a female virgin would act. Who was it that went in with them and then immediately died? Like immediately went into the caves with them. Well, I don't know if it was immediately, but there was the one who was trying to stop him. Yeah, I think that because. Uh, they like the status quo. The king has power as long as he can control the dragon. Mm -hmm. If you take away the dragon, the king has no reason for existence. Right. Strangely enough, this dragon that is the bane of their existence, the king needs him. Yeah, it's a very symbiotic kind of a weird relationship because the king needs the dragon and the dragon needs the king to provide virgins. Right. Uh, the convenience of having DoorDash for virgins. Right. Is, yeah. is probably overwhelmingly uh, positive for the dragon. Do you have a favorite performance? Ralph Richardson, I thought, fantastic as, as the... Um, yeah, he's the James Earl Jones of this movie. Yes, absolutely. A large amount of gravitas, very puffed up chest. He just did an excellent job of, of walking that line of old age vulnerability with power. He, he did an amazing job. I also like the king. I can't remember the king's name, but he played an ass really well. Peter Eyre as King Cassid. Dorius Ophila, okay. the dragon slayer. <laughs> that at the end, they give him the sword, and then the dragon's already dead, and he puts his sword into the dragon's head, and everybody's like, oh, he slayed the dragon! And you're like, oh, kiss my ass. <laughs> yeah, but that's how you maintain power. Create sure. your own legend. Yeah. I certainly agree about Ralph. He plays these uh, grizzled, doddering old main characters very well. He was also great if you ever saw Tarzan, the legend of race soaking lord of the apes or whatever the <laughs> the three names of that movie was i also liked albert salmi he's the one who converts christianity at the end and convinces the village to go with him once the priest died i like him very much apparently his voice was dubbed oh, sure. peter mcnichol i actually thought was going to have a bigger career because of this and because of sophie's choice i guess he's not really a romantic lead he's more of a character actor in the end as he got older but he had a background in horse riding, so some of the stunts were actually his he said quote they took away my stirrups they took away my rein and whipped the horse and then they told me to windmill my arms and turn a complete circle in the saddle then they took <laughs> away the saddle <laughs> he also had taken stage combat this is a story that most actors will start pulling their hair out over he was discovered at a regional theater an agent spotted him doing romeo and juliet gave him her card and said he should come to new york he almost immediately did and looked her up at that moment people were reading in preparation for something he could hear it and he asked if there was a part for him it was this movie and he eventually got jobs <laughs> god i hate people like that <laughs> yeah right peter mcnichol was great the only things i remember him from prior was ally mcbeal and ghostbusters 2 right yeah. he was super eccentric and then going back and seeing him in a role where he's not acting off the wall, just normal kind of, is, is interesting to see. He's gone a long way from Sophie's Choice mm -hmm. to, I think, Beat. Cinematographer is Derek Van Lint. He is most known for Alien. Mm -hmm. He only did four movies and mostly concentrated on commercials in Canada. But I think the movie is just gorgeous to look at. I thought it was great. Just the, the aesthetic, the layout of it. And I can't have wonderful cinematography without wonderful set direction, set design. The design of the set that they built, particularly at the end with the dragon and everything, to capture those moments on film, it's lightning in a bottle. And the music is by Alex North. He's one of the great. He has nominated 15 nominations. He never won, but did receive an honorary Oscar. Oh, good. <laughs> he, was, he was also nominated for song for that great piece, Unchained Melody, Oh My Love, 
my darling. Oh my God, yeah. The ghost song. Yes, yes. That's mm-hmm. how we would know it today. It's from the movie Unchained. So that's why it's called Unchained Melody. It's about a chain gang. It's about someone on a chain gang. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, the score's linear conception was developed through transparently layered and polyphonic orchestra texture dominated by a medieval style modal harmony. And here is that odd percussion and atonal feel much of the time. North had six weeks to compose the score, and he used a lot of the music rejected from his score for Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. As I understand it, Kubrick didn't tell North that they had replaced all his music with classical choices before its premiere at a film festival. So he didn't know it until he was watching the movie. Yeah, awkward. Yeah, a bit. The music was widely praised. Pauline Kael wrote in The New Yorker, that the score was a beauty, and that at times the music in the Fiery Dragon theme won. Royal S. Brown of Fanfare Magazine praised the soundtrack as one of the best of 1981. And now we have to talk about the dragon and the special effects. I think we've already mentioned it's a great dragon. Yeah, great dragon. I'm well done. The stop motion, I believe, is what they used for the flight at night with the dragon. Fantastic also. The, to make it look as realistic as they did, what they had to work with practically. Uh. 25% of the film's budget went into the dragon's special effects. Mm-hmm. This included the hydraulic 40-foot, 12-meter model. The dragon consists of 16 puppets dedicated to flying, crawling, or fire-breathing. Mm-hmm. David Bennett was the one who designed it. He wanted to give it a degree of personality. He was trying to avoid the, the feel of the creature from Alien, which he believed was too hideous to look at. This is his only known film work, and Industrial Light and Magic did the effect. And this is what you might mean by stop motion. This was the first movie to use go mode, a variant of stop motion animation, mm-hmm. in which parts of the model, in this case the dragon, were mechanized and the movement programmed by computers. During shooting, the computer moves the model while the camera is shooting. Oh, okay. Resulting in motion blur, which makes the animation more convincing. And it was a very influential dragon. Guillermo del Toro has stated that Along with Maleficent and Sleeping Beauty, Vermithrax, which is the name of the dragon, is his favorite cinematic dragon. He further stated that, quote, one of the best and one of the strongest landmarks of dragon movies that almost nobody can overcome is Dragon Slayer. The design of Vermithrax pejorative is perhaps one of the most perfect creature designs ever made. And George R.R. Martin of Game of Thrones, The Song of Ice and Fire, author, once ranked it the fifth best, best fantasy film of all time and called Vermithrax, quote, the best dragon ever put on film with the coolest dragon name. It is a cool name. It's a very cool name. And Vermithrax is mentioned as an Easter egg in the list of dragons' names in the fourth episode of that book series adaptation, Game of Thrones. Mm. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert both gave the film three stars out of four in their respective reviews. Siskel praised the dazzling special effect and the convincing portrait by Ralph Richardson. And Ebert called the scenes involving the dragon first rate. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times called Vermithrax the greatest design yet and praised the film for its effective evocation of the Dark Ages. David Denby of New York praised Dragon Slayer's special effect and lauded the film as being much better than Excalibur and Raiders of the Lost Ark. With that, here's some more information about the film. It cost $18 million to make and made $14.1 million at the box office. So it was a box office disappointment. It was nominated for two Oscars, Best Special Effects, which it lost to Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Alex North for Best Original Score, which went to Chariots of Fire. Vermithrax pejorative roughly translates as the Worm of Thrace, which makes things worse. A Thrace is a location. So Anne McDermott, who portrays the minor character Brother Jacopus in Dragon Slayer, stars as Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Peter McNichol and Caitlin Clark, this was both of their film debuts. Oh, that's a good one to debut in. They did a great job. With that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Yes, I've got more than two, but not a lot. So I'll go Fine. through very That's uh, great. How to Train Your four choices. Yes, absolutely. Uh, how to Train Your Dragon, first one from DreamWorks, I think. A fantastic animated film about the world of dragons. I found it to be engrossing and emotional, fun, uh, humorous at times. So How to Train Your Dragon, Mulan, for a lot of the same reason, but with the, the mystical aspect of it, but also the strength and the positivity of a female lead dragon heart it's an interesting one if you get a chance uh, it almost set up like a stage play in a way between a man and a dragon and, and i thought that to be just fascinating uh 
the new one that just came out, Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, I thought was a fun romp for all ages. I think it's just a hoot, and I highly recommend it. If it's still in theaters locally for you, go see it. And if it's not, you can find it, I believe, on Paramount+. Plus. Either purchase it or it's available to watch for streaming there. Uh, Shrek uh, is another great one. A lot of fantasy elements. We do have a dragon in there. We also have a donkey. And again, which was mentioned already, to my surprise, Sleeping Beauty, which is personally my favorite animated Disney film of all time. And also one of my favorite dragons also is Maleficent. Oh, great. Well, I have three and we didn't overlap. The first is Fritz Lang's 1924 silent epic Die Part 1, Siegfried, based on the legend of Siegfried. Mm. At the start of his adventure, Siegfried kills a dragon and gains a treasure thereby. 1963's Jason and the Argonaut may not be rich in acting, but in special effects that was tops at the time. The story of the myth of Jason ends with Jason having to slay a dragon in order to capture the Golden Fleece and bring home Medea as his new queen. In the sequel, he brutally divorces her to marry a princess, and she murders their children and the princess in retaliation. But that's another story. Q, the winged serpent, has the Aztec serpent god Quetzalcoatl making a nest at the top of New York City's Chrysler building and feeding on people. A petty crook, played by Michael Moriarty, and what may be his best performance, uses this beast to kill his enemy. So what is next? What should we be expecting from Oh, well, I mean, I have my podcast, The Real Short Box. It's an audio podcast. Uh, it's pop culture, comic book related. So you can find us pretty much on any podcast platform. We do have our live stream shows. We still do those uh, every Monday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. And that is through our uh, sister banner, Rumble Pop, on YouTube live. Another thing that we're got going is i have the footage for a a short film that we're going to be doing it's just basically a holiday special for the character the blue beetle did four seasons of a web series you can find it on rumble spoon productions on youtube and last but not least is a uh, episode that i actually helped shoot uh, is going to be premiering on amazon not long from now and it's on a show called a toy store near you i think it's going to be the premiere episode of the season Someone's been busy, haven't they? A little bit. <laughs> I'll list my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Read. I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. And I am slowly, too slowly, but I am getting my uh, pop art episodes up on YouTube, and some of the earliest episodes can be found there. The, The previous episode was with filmmaker, podcaster, author, and film scholar Stephen J. Rubin of the James Bond Encyclopedia where we talked North by Northwest and Tell No One. Two wrong man films about characters accused of a crime they didn't commit and go on the run to prove their innocence. The next episode will see the return of guests Anna Kaiser and Derek Tahanke of the 80s movie montage podcast, where we will talk Stripe and what some people might consider their grandfather's version of Stripe. No time for Sarge. So once again, thank you, Donald, for being a guest, and not just on the show, but on 100th episode. Ah, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you for having me.